Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Paul Keelan. I'm Jordan Puga. And today we'll be talking about Heavyweights, the 1995 classic about fat kids at a camp. Awesome. So Heavyweights came out the weekend of February 17th. It was President's Day weekend, so it was a longer weekend. And it was a big weekend for films coming out. In its total domestic box office earnings, Heavyweights was pretty lightweight to start off with a pretty lame pun. It earned only $17.5 million. But on its first weekend, it had a pretty strong debut. It came in third place with $6 million. So one third or more than one third of its total box office earnings came that first weekend, which usually isn't a good sign for a film. It says that there was a lot of hype and excitement and quickly that dissipated once word spread around. However, as we'll get into it, this film now has a cult status. So this is a very confusing thing where it has a niche group that really loved this film, but for the masses, it didn't really work. And there are a lot of pretty obvious reasons why it would be marginalizing for the general populace of American moviegoers who saw this in theaters. So this week, number one was the Brady Bunch movie. It made 17 million its first weekend. So it was a huge hit right out of the gates. A quick little piece of trivia is this film stars Ben Stiller's wife, Christine Taylor, as Marsha, 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 Marsha. I remember seeing this film very vaguely, but I think they go to Hawaii. Do you remember seeing this film in theaters as well? Yeah, I've ever seen in theaters. Don't remember much about it, but I believe they go like on a vacation in Hawaii. I remember it's very much like the TV show. I used to watch the TV show a bit. So if you're familiar with the TV show, you'd probably like the movie. Totally. And in second place this weekend was a film called Just Cause. I've never seen it. Never even heard of it. 10.6 million it took in though. And it's one of those 90s adult smart films that we don't get anymore. There's so many articles that are written about these films that Miramax and some of those companies, production companies would put out and they would make it to theaters and they would draw a big crowd. And today they're usually straight to demand or Netflix or, or something like that. Just reading the synopsis of this film reminded me of all these types of movies in the 90s that were smart and adult. This week on Netflix, Double Indemnity came out. It's been up on the top 10 list all week and buzzing. I just love that. It's it's this resurgence of these films that we're, we're now missing. Yeah. And this film's about a Harvard professor who is played by Sean Connery. And he's lured back into the courtroom after 25 years to take a case of a young black man played by Lawrence Fishburne. So two great actors uh, who is condemned to death for the horrific murder of a child. That was our first and second place. And third place, as I noted, was heavyweight. So I'll let you now jump on the fourth place film this weekend. Yeah, so uh, number four is Billy Madison, which came in with $5.5 million that week. Obviously, I'd say Billy Madison is a much more prolifically known film than Heavyweights now. I know it's probably my favorite. among In my top three Adam Sandler movies, I would say Billy Madison would have to reside somewhere in there. So it's actually interesting to see that Heavyweights had opened up with a bigger showing. And I wonder if that was urged with having so much of the cast composed of like Mighty Ducks characters or actors who were in Mighty Ducks films. Yeah, you see the poll from the Mighty Ducks and from Ben Stiller likely as well. I don't quite know the timeline of Ben Stiller's career, so I don't know what he means at this point in time, actually. Yeah, I feel like for me, Ben Stiller, I mean, like comedy and in my consciousness of Ben Stiller was with something about Mary. Sets me on the track of all the preceding work from after. I know he was in like Cable Guy and stuff like that, but he doesn't really have like a big role. I believe he wrote Cable Guy, if I remember, I might be wrong about that. But yeah, so for me, like something about Mary is when Ben Stiller comes on my comedy radar of must-see comedy actors. 
Yeah, as I said that, I remember as well that he directed Reality Bites, a great film. And I know that would be before Heavyweights. Uh, so he was definitely already well known. I just don't know if he had hit yet A Night at the Roxbury slash Zoolander would still come out after this. These yeah. films that really made him a comedic powerhouse in the box office. I just don't know if he was at that status yet. He's had a huge prolific career. And he not only acts, but he also writes and directs. I believe he directed The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which was pretty good. Like I said, directed Reality Bites. There's this film called Brad Status. It's a really low-key film about a father uh, basically taking his son to different college visits before he uh, decides where he's going to go. And it's kind of a middle-class, upper-middle-class man in uh, existential crisis. It's a very good film. It's actually really poignant and introspective. Uh, so Ben Stiller has a lot of complexity as well. He's not only comedy based, he's great at drama. I think he's one of our better actors and more prolific people in the industry. And Billy Madison, we got to talk about this because we're not going to be able to talk about it too much when we do our Adam Sandler sports movies, right? So we'll just push for now Happy Gilmore and the water boy aside and quickly get into Billy Madison for our sake, because a lot of this podcast is not only about sports films, but it's also about nineties culture, at least in this segment of our podcast. And so Billy Madison, uh, definitely Adam Sandler's top three, perhaps his most iconic film of the nineties. The thing that really launched his career for a lot of us or just made him a household name. We just got to get into it. What is your favorite moment in Billy Madison and why do you love it so much? Off the top of my head, I want to think about the dodgeball scene when he's just picking off the kids one by one. And I don't know why, but I think watching this movie, for some reason, made me think of that scene, even though they're not really the same movies. I love that scene when he's just, he's a giant and he's catching the balls. He's just taking them out. Yeah, that, the dodgeball scene. Well, I wonder since Ben Stiller ends up playing a similar character as Tony Perkins in this in Dodgeball, if perhaps your brain was making all these associations and suddenly thinking maybe Billy Madison was a precursor to the film Dodgeball. That is a good point. Cause I was, I was on the, I was on board with that idea of uh, Tony Perkins being like our guy from a Dodgeball. So I was, I was all about Dodgeball in my head during this, during the watching this movie for sure. And also trying to find the sports connection with this movie. It's another thing I was doing as I was watching this in my head. I was kept coming back to, is this a sports movie? And whatever reason that's a sports moment in Billy Madison, I think is, is the Dodgeball game. Just to throw it out there, the dodgeball character that Ben Stiller plays is White Goodman. We both were blanking for a second, but it came to me. So White Goodman. And yes, is this a sports movie? Let's get to that question right after this. I'm going to finish with our box office. The last film that I want to bring up is called The Quick and the Dead, just because it's another film that was on its first weekend. This is with Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman. Sharon Stone plays a female gunfighter who returns to a frontier town where a dueling tournament is being held. And she enters in an effort to avenge her father's death. Father being Gene Hackman. It took in 4.2. It's another film I have never heard of. I don't know how all these have passed me. Maybe it was slightly before my time because I'm seven years old now. So I know Billy Madison. I know Heavyweights because they're kid-based films. But these adult ones I don't really know about. So it's a pretty 90s week. I love these 94, 95 weekends and digging into them just because... They remind me of these films that take me back to the movies eight, this really crappy little theater up the street and seeing the Brady Bunch, right? Or Billy Madison at Robert Locke's house or just like all these, you know, specific moments. So you'd already brought it up and why not start right away? Heavyweights is a strange film for this podcast because it's our first one that delves into the question we brought up on our introductory podcast, which is, is it a sports film? What is a sports film? What defines this genre? What leniency are we going to give to some of these films? 
We chose this film. It was in a list I found of the top Disney sports films of the 90s. It was quite high on the list. It had a lot of the Mighty Ducks actors. It had a lot of the ethos and kind of sensibility of those 90s Disney sports films. Yet, it's not quite the same type of sports film as those. So I'm going to let you go first on this. Is this to you a sports film? To me, this one was not a sports film. I think that you kind of set up right. A lot of what it's carrying off of is what we know from 90s Disney sports movies. But when you actually get into the seat to watch it unfold, to me, it's not a sports movie. It has few moments of sports. Like we have the, I believe, a baseball game, a softball games in here. We understand that there's a rivalry with the other camp, Camp MVP, who is across the lake, who's supposed to be the more athletic kids, composed that camp, obviously opposing our, that camp, Camp Cozy Powder Kids. But then there's really no team element to this at all. Like there's no, um, like Mighty Ducks, obviously a big part of it is the Ducks identity. Big Green, a big part of it is how do we come around one and realize we all have our skills that makes us all worthwhile as people. Obviously baseball is just the highlight of everything and Angels in the Apple, just discussing the ones we've gone through so far. This one, sports use as a way to convey not necessarily an athletic deficiency, but again, to highlight the otherness of our main characters, the fat kids. Um, that's really all sports kind of does in this for the most part up until the end. And as you pointed out, I'll let you take this here. When we finally get to the Apache relay race, which is supposed to be our culminating, I'd say our game, which I love the way it's titled the Apache relay race too. It sounds like a completely incorrect WWE main event. The Apache relay race. I love it. I just imagine like just great wrestlers in this main event. But anyways, I, I diverge. When we get to that, like, you know, this competition, which does have part athletic and then part academics, I guess we'd say is, is in it. It doesn't necessarily rely on, on the sports enough for it to be really meaningful. So I felt sports are just another part of the setting in this one. Yeah, I want to deviate, though, when you say part of the setting. All the points you made are very strong. I agree that it is in a traditional sports movie. I look at this as more of a fusion slash hybrid film. It was written and directed by Stephen Brill, who did all the Mighty Ducks films. So he's pulling from the Mighty Ducks in many ways because that's what's familiar to him. There is Camp MVP across the lake, which you mentioned, right? And it even has the arc in which they have a quick baseball game with them in which they're hapless and there's a lot of baseball sitting in the nuts and just scenes where they're just shown as completely incompetent and ill-fit for any sport. And so they have at least that arc in which they have the game where they suck against the evil team and the game in which they do well against the evil team. And in the middle, like the Ducks films, they get, as you always say, chirped at by the Camp MVP. They go by on their speedboat and talk crap to them. And so they have this fictional nemesis. But I want to bring up your point or elaborate on your point is that in the final Apache relay race, which not only is it politically incorrect that it's called that, but they're also wearing Indian attire garb, right? Like a Native American <laughs> outfits and Camp MVP is wearing toga outfits. Why they have these outfits? I have no idea, but <laughs> it's hilarious. Wait, wait, right. I gotta try to stop you there. Is that supposed to further like highlight this like, racist dichotomy that the Greeks are just more athletic than Native Americans? Because <laughs> like, why Greek? Like, is it the fraternity thing? Because I was running the same thing. Why are they running around in togas for an athletic competition? I'll just push that a bit further and say that then are the Native Americans considered the like cunning tribe that use strategy and trickery because obviously they didn't really lose weight over the course of this film. So they're not able to match Cap MVP physically by the end yet. But as you pointed out, the Apache Relay comes down to moments in which there is no athletic achievement of Camp Hope. It comes down to brains versus brawn. 
it comes down to math equations. It comes down to basic trivia and it comes down to a go-kart race. It doesn't come down to the rock climbing scene or the sack race. In fact, they do terribly, the heavyweights crew in the sack race and throwing the football through the tire. They actually barely make it. They do get lucky there, but we get the balloon being shaved well. Why? Because Goldberg's prematurely pubescent young kid who already has to shave, right? They they did a good job noting that early in the film. They set it up well, but there's nothing to do with any athletic real development in this film that leads them to winning this. And you kind of wonder, why didn't they win this years before? Why did it take so long for them to beat camp MVP? Like, was this relay completely, was it reversed the year before and the year before that? And that's why they always lost because the athletic events came at the end. They'd win all the math problems and they just, they just get stuck in that relay race and the team would catch up, I'm guessing. I have no clue why they are the perennial losers. They've never won. And you get the feeling that it's all athletic based and we're going to get this development of them athletically or physiologically in some ways. But no, it comes down to a really awesome go-kart flyover move at the end, which plays nicely with this motif of flying, which I didn't understand throughout the film, starting with the moment in which our main character gets on the plane because his parents sent him to this fat camp. And he is suddenly being confronted by the stewardess who gives him this little pin, right? And she says something about flying. And I was kind of taken aback. I didn't really understand what it meant until the end. And then they play on it quite a, a bit with everyone in the camp. What, what's their nickname for him? You call him Captain, right? Because yeah. he shows up and they see him with the little wings and they therefore call him Captain that sticks. Yeah, they call him Captain. And this character I'm talking about, it is Jerry Garner, played by Aaron. Aaron Schwartz. And quickly now, since we jumped into the climax and ending of the film, pretty much the final thing, let's talk about some of these actors so it can make it a little easier to follow for everyone. Uh, so Jerry Garner is our lead in the film. And the arc is that he gets sent to fat camp by his parents, kind of reluctantly, but it turns out at first to be awesome. And then it sucks once Ben Stiller comes into the picture. Then there's the kind of sports sub theme. Um, and he's played by Aaron Schwartz. Uh, some of the other kids have been in the Mighty Ducks films. Keenan Thompson as Roy in this film and Sean Weiss is Josh Birnbaum in this film. And we also have Ben Siller, of course, as the intense, high-strung fitness freak, Tony Perkins. And we have some really cool camp counselors with Tom McGowan, who plays Pat Finley. Tom McGowan's in a lot of things throughout his career. He's been in The Birdcage. He's been in Ghost World. He's been in Frasier, the TV show, Bad Santa. And then we have Paul Fagg as Tim. I don't know if you're a big Paul Fagg fan, but he's a great writer slash director now. He's done Bridesmaids. He did the Ghostbusters reboot. He did The Heat. He did A Simple Lie last year. He's just on a roll. I didn't realize he was the creator of Freaks and Geeks, which I like a lot. And I always recognize him as the teacher from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That's why I always go to as for him. He's forever connected in my mind with that role. But yeah, I never realized he was such a prolific uh, director and writer, though. A lot of stuff I like, too. Yeah, and that's partially because of his, not that he's any of these things because of Apatow, but uh, him and Apatow have had hugely successful careers, Judd Apatow. And Judd Apatow is the co-writer of this film. So there's a lot of huge names in this film. And they're very early on yeah. in their careers. We get Jerry Stiller, so Ben Stiller's real-life father, as the previous camp owner in this film. It's kind of an inside joke, definitely, for everyone who knows their father's son. And actually, uh, at this time, I mean, you still recognize him, like, from Seinfeld fame. People love him as George's father. Yep. So... A crazy comedic powerhouse cast, not only in terms of acting, 
but in terms of some of these characters behind the scenes. We have huge multidimensional people in these films that are writers, directors, and actors and have their hands and their imprint all over the last few decades of cinema. So now that we've got a lot of the uh, actors in, there's a few smaller actors I want to bring up too. Tim Blake Nelson has a very small role as Roger Johnson. He's basically the ambassador that shows up in the beginning of the film at the house of Jerry's to show him this VHS tape of how awesome Camp Hope is. They show the blob. It looks pretty fun, like this amazing camp. But then he he also realizes, the young kid Jerry, that it is a fat camp. So he freaks out and doesn't want to go for that reason. And then Jerry's dad is played by Jeffrey Tambor. What I thought was really coincidental was his name in this film is Maury. And his name in Transparent is Maury as well. Or in Transparent, he's fantastic in. I know you know him more from Arrested Development, yeah. I'm sure. Arrested Development, huge fan of that show. And you can really see where he gets the mannerisms of the character George in this one, particularly when he shows up at the camp and he sees his son's still fat. Quietly says to his wife, the boy hasn't lost any, hasn't lost a pound. In my mind, I heard George saying that about like one of his kids. In Transparent, he is so different. I couldn't wrap my head around to being the same person. I was like, that's his face, right? He had such a distinct face. That's Jeffrey Tambor. And I looked at my wife and was like, is that Jeffrey Tambor? And she paused and looked as well because she was half watching. And we were both just dumbfounded for a good minute by the fact that it was him. Weird role though. He had almost no depth or complexity or anything. It was... No. Yeah. yeah. And he gets like some kind of points and big moments. Like he's a lot of just moving to where we got to go to the next scene but pretty much. Yeah, and also Tim Blake Nelson, who's a great, one of my favorite B-movie slash bit part characters. He's great in Western films. The Coen brothers always cast great roles for Tim Blake Nelson. He's also a director and writer, actually. He does really good work as well. I think he was a philosophy major, and so he has really existentially insightful films. I forget the names. I'm bummed out that I'm forgetting and blanking on the names of his films, but the last film he made was this really deep and melancholic film in New York City about death, philosophically rich tapestry yeah. that he creates. I just seen him literally this week. I just finished Watchmen, and he plays one of the detectives on there, the character named Lighthouse. He's one of my favorite performances in that whole series, I think, is Tim Blake. He plays a very good, reclusive, paranoid law enforcement officer. That's about all I'll say about it. But that's the cool thing about watching this movie. It's a lot of cool throwbacks of looking where these actors are at now because it is a very loaded cast, as we're pointing out, where a lot of these actors are still have major roles today. So there's yeah. a lot of fun looking at kind of this, where they get their start in the 90s. Where were they at in the 90s versus where they're at now? Even the cameraman, I don't know if you noticed the cameraman. Yeah. Uh, is played the first by- one I noticed, because we were talking about Billy Madison earlier and our love for Adam Sandler. And so, yeah, the idea that Ellen Cobert was in this was, he's obviously starred in Grandma's Boy is the one he's where he gets his lead role, but he always finds a way into an Adam Sandler movie. And Sandler always finds his parts for his friends. Yeah, I always remember him from Billy Madison as his little, you know, drunk best friend who comes and hangs out with him by the pool. And if you want the face, as you mentioned, he's the star of Grandma's Boy, main character in that film. And he's in almost all of Adam Sandler's films. He was one of Adam Sandler's friends in childhood. Not childhood, childhood. He was, uh, I think he was in his college or something. Same with Judd Apatow, I believe, was roommates with Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler keeps all of his friends around him. So he's extremely loyal and he definitely understands the theory of nepotism. (laughs) But no, I actually actually think actually in a positive light about how Adam Sandler keeps all of his cast and crew the same. Yeah, it really adds a quality to to his movies. It's part of the branding. It's part of what makes an Adam Sandler an Adam Sandler. At least in my mind, like when I think of Adam Sandler movies, I haven't watched too many new ones, but whenever I think of Adam Sandler movies, movies from like the 90s to like the mid 2000s, that era, it's the idea that some of these familiar faces will pop in there. And what's so interesting to me is that Adam Sandler's Billy Madison came out this weekend and a lot of these people were watching 
are very frequent collaborators with him. Not only Alan yeah. Covert, but Judd Apatow, right? Judd Apatow made Funny People, which mm-hmm. was one of Adam Sandler's greatest serious roles. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite Judd Apatow movies, actually. Yeah. And Stephen Brill is the writer and director of almost all of Adam Sandler's crappy Netflix films that he put out in the past 10 years. Really gone downhill in those films for the most part. A few are okay, actually. The do-over was okay. I mean, okay in the most generous use of, of the word possible. And so there's just a lot of crossover between Adam Sandler's world and the world of heavyweights. And it was interesting that they were both going against each other on this prescient weekend for the future of American cinematic comedies. And there's one more person. It's Lars. It's played by Tom Hodges. He was also famous from the film Lucas in the 80s, 1986 film. He played Bruno. He's the funny German fascist counselor with the squeaky voice. I thought he was one of the funnier characters, but also not as funny as he could have been. It reminded me of the, again, going back to like our dodgeball representing, I think we'll do it probably a few times throughout this podcast, but it reminded me of, again, that seed of what would eventually be the Team Global Gym, his entourage in that movie. He has three Larses in that movie, and each of them has a lot more depth. I feel like that's kind of like another little thread to what we see from Ben Stiller's work in this. To take it back to our question, right, we went on a digression into the actors, and before that, we were talking about whether this is a sports movie, and I was making my point that it's kind of a sports movie because of Stephen Brill's touch and some of the arcs are very similar to the Mighty Ducks. However, I also this is a fusion or hybrid film and I want to bring up that this is very much three things in one or even almost four, but I want to keep it to three. In this sense, I agree with you. It's not really a sports film. It's also kind of a camp film and it's also kind of a film about fat people. That's its main theme. More than sports. It's called Heavyweights and the whole film is about being young and overweight. And so this film, it fits in the category as well with something like Wet Hot American Summer Mm -hmm. or Meatballs as it would fit in with The Mighty Ducks, if not more so. Moonrise Kingdom, Action Point. There's a lot of good camp films about young kids going to camp. Do you have any great memories of camp or do you have any of these camp films you love? No, I was having trouble remembering summer camp movies that I exclusively would rewatch or anything like that or I'd see in theaters. And I can only think of movies with like a summer camp element to it. For me, the first time I think of a summer camp scene, I think of Adam's Family Values. And that's the scene when Wednesday and Pugsley take over the camp. But the way they take over the camp is much more violent, straight anarchy it's a very funny scene where they just completely uprun it and it's the same thing where they make fun of the idea that this camp they're attending is just desecrating native american culture with the shit they make them wear and they, they change that and that so i always think of that scene but camp movies no it's not just a genre i was never really drawn to do you have any camp experiences as a kid i know we had most of our you know childhood together yet you know we went to different elementary schools mm-hmm. and i know i think once you came with me on a boy scouts trip to Devil's Punch Bowl, I remember. Yeah, I remember going to that. And I remember I went once to like a sixth grade camping trip with a lot of friends that was fun. Our teacher brought us. But I didn't really have many camp experiences. That's why these films are a little weird for me is I never really had this experience. How about yourself? The only camp I had like, like stay away camping was in sixth grade, they'd have what's called science camp. And you go up to like Wrightwood, past like Mountain High, where everyone goes snowboarding. I remember going up there, I'm like, those kids are snowboarding. We should go be doing that. But you go up there and you stay in like a cabin for a week and you go hiking and stuff like that. And they teach you, you know, more about natural science. You sleep in bunks, just like them. You know, you have bunks and all that stuff. And you have counselors and there's a cafeteria. That's the only camp I'd ever been to, though. Yeah, I remember when you actually went to that. I still do. I was jealous and super bummed because I didn't have anyone to play with for the week or hang out with or play sports. And I didn't get to do it. 
it because your school Mesquite did and mine didn't. I had a K through eight, which sucked. So I brought up now a bunch of camp films. This also goes with the tradition of films about people who are obese and are trying to overcome their obesity or obesity plays a central theme of the film. And there's also a list of these films, which you can kind of fit. There's an intersection of genres this movie plays with. Some of these films are Angus. Have you seen Angus? Yes. I remember watching that at your house growing up. I remember get, watching that like a few times on the VHS. That was that one where we'd rent it, watch it, go take it back, re-rent it and watch it. And we'd all be like stoked at the end of it and just feel awesome because like, Angus. It's such a feel-good movie. I remember watching it with my mom. I still remember the afternoon and we were just so touched by it. I remember going to Burger King with her and we were just like, that was a great film. It's a really good feel-good film, especially mm. the end sequence. I don't know the actor's name or I mean the character's name is Angus, right? But Throughout it, he's the fat kid in school and he's picked on. And I don't know the reason why, but he's running for prom king and he actually wins. Leading up to this, he's terrified of being the fat kid and having to do the dance. And right when he wins, the main jock, who's the evil person the film, makes fun of him in front of everyone. And then Angus just completely excoriates the jock. He rips him apart. And in the best way possible, in the most triumphant monologue in all of these like 90s kids-based films, it's just such a great scene. It's on YouTube. Really, really crappy quality. I watched it like the other week with my wife. It's a fun movie. It has Mini Shermanator in it um, as his dorky redheaded friend. Check out Angus. There's no sports element to that at all but it's got a lot of it's the other great underdog story still it's still the underdog story so if you're into the underdog story it's it's that great no you said it it's the underdog story Uh, that's what i was trying trying to get at and i was failing to it has the ethos and the underdog narrative that these films have another one bad santa i saw bad santa probably 10 times at your house oh yeah Um, we love Bad Santa. Thurman Merman, man. Thurman Merman. <laughs> Thurman Merman's great, which is a great film, too, about an overweight kid who finds a friend with this misanthropic, drunk, great character by Billy Bob Thornton. Pointing out, uh, Bad Santa does such a good job of really highlighting that that kid's weight issue is what's alienating him from his bullies and all that stuff, which uh, I don't think heavyweights really does. We don't have a lot of outside adversity other than the camp factors played by Ben Stiller and our opposing camps but that's more of a tradition rooted in losing this big Apache race we'll get to it I don't necessarily think those kids come off as terrible compared to some of these other teams we've talked about the rival teams we've had like particularly the Hawks and Ducks 1 come off as just awful people in the first scene whereas this one we don't really get that sense of bullying as our catalyst in the beginning of this film which I find interesting it's not till like halfway through as you point out it's kind of shifting a lot of this movie it's playing with different like you said three different stories and when we get to the what I'm gonna call like the hostage narrative that's when we get our adversary and that's where we get their weight being an issue because they have someone who's targeting them. Whereas going back to my point with Bad Santa, that's why we love Thurman Merman. It's because the scene we're introduced to him, he's the poor fat kid who's adorable. He gets beat up and wants to make the wooden pickle that he cuts himself with. The idea that Merman's so helpless and just so lost, it's given to you right at the start. It's one of the best things Bad Santa does. And I feel like I've wanted that from heavyweights. And I never got that in this movie because I'm not really drawn to how being overweight for this particular group of kids is an issue because we get the start with uh, Jeffrey Tambor's character. It seems parents kind of want to get him away for the summer. <laughs> They're getting a jump on the thing, but I kind of get the idea. They just want to get him away from the summer. It starts off with the sequence where he's coming home from school. And you could tell he's kind of a loser. He tries to throw a baseball over the fence and fails like six times. The scene in which there's a dog on a leash 
barking at him and he's terrified. It's absolutely hilarious to me. You might have even missed it. It's one of those I don't think is funny to many people. But the way I, this kid actor played terror, I just loved. It was one of my favorite parts of the film. So. No, I got to point out, this, that scene reminded me of you when you used to walk by Gwen's dog, uh, Shelby, the fat dog that bit you one time. <laughs> Ever since the dog bit you, that's what Paul would look like. He's a dog that like, just hated Paul for some reason. Everyone else could walk by fine, but just did not like Paul. I think thinking about you as a kid is what made me crack up at that scene. It might be the hardest I laughed when I watched this movie. That was probably what I was subconsciously going on, I guess, is I was thinking of Shelby, <laughs> having nightmares of Shelby, knowing I wasn't alone watching Jerry freak out as well but Shelby just to stick up for myself did bite me I still have a slight I remember bruise it was a big moment right there was this controversy like would we press even charges or something we wouldn't do that but <laughs> it was like it, not drama it was drama we didn't we're not litigious by any means <laughs> but there was a dog that traumatized me in our neighborhood between my house and your house yeah. no less it was always on a leash on the lawn it was probably I mean a very nice dog to everyone else but had a thing out for me so it knew I was the like little skinny dweeby one so it, it, it was just going to torture me but you do mention that there's the element of not being enough of an outcast for some of these fat kids let's just be blunt i do think they do a good job of showing the fact that they get this camp that's going to be this place where finally they are all fitting in they're actually inverting the social norm in which being skinny is now what stands you apart and kind of turns you into a pariah figure because paul fegg's character tim right we learned that he was once a obese kid who went to Camp Hope as well and he had lost all this weight and they kind of poke fun at him for it. Yeah. I love how much pride they have and how it shows that if you get a bunch of people together of a similar quality, you realize that you can build a lot of self-esteem and it actually is a very positive thing. This is a weird example, but there's this documentary which is very kind of controversial. It's in China and there's this amusement park in China that's completely run by, I don't know the PC word for this anymore. We change it so often. So small people, small people, right? And a lot of people criticize it, but then it's also a beautiful thing you watch that I think Vice did this documentary and these people have so much more pride and a feeling of inclusivity that they lack in ordinary life. And there is this feeling at the beginning of Heavyweight to this beautiful sense in which they are going to all feel like they fit in, like mm -hmm. they don't have to worry. It's almost as if Stephen Brill understands that it is such a taboo, even though it's so common to be overweight in social situations as a kid, that it's already unspoken. It's implied that they go through hell in school simply by that fact. And so that they get this great period of the year in which they get to go be who they are and just jump off the blob into the lake. It's this kind of paradise for this specific demographic. And then what Ben Siller does is he brings in all of the social critiques and opinionated, persecutory shaming that society brings and amplifies it to the nth degree. So they just feel as crappy as they could possibly feel. What's missing though is agreed, I think. Once Tony Perkins shows up, they don't play on it enough where they are picked on or you really feel that outcast nature. I wish the beginning of the film had a montage of all of these kids dealing with the crap of everyday life. Uh -huh. And then we really get this trip as a reprieve where they can be in their own element. I think that Keenan's scene on the airplane when he runs into Jerry and talks with them, it sets it up well that he makes light of their weight and banters about it and feels a sense of deep identity with it. 
it. It's completely unabashed and refreshingly so. So it plays strangely against Bad Santa or Angus, but Apatow is the co-writer and he's made a lot of films starring, you know, Seth Rogen and Jonah Hill who play also ostracized overweight characters to finish off with this genre connection right we have knocked up we have super bad even train wreck with amy schumer has a lot of commentary about obino b so this is one of apatow's really strong points which i respect i think he does a good job of normalizing it and humanizing it giving power to it and celebrating it and even on one that came out last year britney runs a marathon i want to bring up as another film about obesity because i think this could be a film we watch i don't know where on earth we would put it but it's one of these films it's kind of a sports movie it's about a young adult who is really in a self-defeating phase of her life. Uh, She has a lot of problems with drinking and sleeping around and kind of in a downward spiral. And she decides one day she's going to run a marathon. It's really, really angsty. She has this combative relationship with this fitness role model female figure who's also got a complex life, who's trying to give her pep talks, you know, give her encouragement. And she wants to resist this figure who she sees as trying to be like too maternal. It's just a really good complex film, I think, that we should look at. So there's a lot of great depictions of this element that far supersede what Heavyweights does by any means. Because Heavyweights is basically this weird hodgepodge of elements, right? We have not only these three, the sports, the camp, and the fat genre kind of intertwining, but we also have whatever weird, comedic, surrealistic film that Ben Siller exists in coming into the picture, right? So I want to move into yeah, the- kind of like that- uh health infomercial kind of critique that he just embodies and like you said just takes to the next level that's where the, i think the real comedy is in this movie so what do you feel about ben stiller and tony perkins everything that he is in this film for me it's hard to separate tony perkins from white goodman just again because of the voice the physical mannerisms fitness connection it's very strong and i'm a big dodgeball fan so that connection is always going to be there but it's fun watching how that is refined through this performance and we really get the brunt of that as you said when he starts taking over the camp and he starts becoming more authoritarian starts issuing more of these weird health ideas and gets the idea of meditation and whatnot in there i love ben silverness though he's, he's the strongest part of this movie so i thought stephen holden from the new york times uh he wrote a review about this in 1995 when it came out i thought he described ben stiller's performance perfectly he says ben stiller gives a hyperkinetic performance that is only a twitch or two lower in spasmodic frenzy than jim carrey during one of his seizures i really like the way he phrased that I feel like there is kind of a battle. We're thinking about this where, where this movie is and then where Ace Ventura is, where Billy Masson is. There is that like battle of sporadic comedy, of the physical comedy. And I think that's like, really alluded here in his fitness, in his overtop running, his overtop fitness regimen. I think that Ben Stiller doesn't get enough credit for his comedic chops to a degree and for his signature comedic element is you're bringing up Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey. They are so profoundly themselves. Their names epitomize this comedic species or this comedic (laughs) embodiment. And Ben Stiller in this film really shines through for what he does and what he does so well. He, He plays it straight. It's almost as if he's method acting. He might be method acting. I wouldn't doubt it. I didn't research that part of it. But he enters into this character in a way in which he is completely committed He is dementedly concentrated into the neuroses of the Tony Perkins figure as he is in the eccentricities of the Zoolander character he plays 
or in Tropic Thunder. He is really good at pulling the film towards him. I don't want to become too mystical, but it might work because he's kind of a quasi mystical character in this film. But there's this element in which when he's on screen, he is so committed to his role that the whole film kind of gets sucked into his energy, which is why this film is at odds because the camp world is this kind of lighthearted, very akin to Wet Hot American Summer. That's nostalgic about these writers and directors and everyone who's making it summer camps as kids. Mm -hmm. And it's very light and inconsequential. And then Stiller comes in with this satire of a Whole Foods, even this is pre Whole Foods, but this yuppie guru fitness. He's a, a motley of things to me. He's not only the like TV infomercial fitness guy, which he definitely is, but he brings up wheatgrass. He brings up meditation. He's kind of holistic medicine. Yeah. He also plays the entitled obliviousness really well. Like he's really plays it really well. He's not aware of how entitled he was as a kid. We described it as he like lost 300 pounds or something like that as a 12 year old. We talked about how he grew up with just private tutors and he's the only child of wealth. And he really builds into the idea of success, but he's unaware of what helped him build that success that was not attributed to anything of his own doing. Yeah, what worked for him does not necessarily work for everyone else, right? Yeah. So that's what gives him his sociopathic element. He's psychotic in his cultish demand that they become his acolytes. Not only that is he's also a capitalistic tyrant who needs to sell his image and brand. So he needs these kids to lose their weight. Otherwise, he's a failure because that's that's what he's doing with this project. And I want to bring up quickly the same article I found by Stephen Holden, a quote that I found a different one which also I think really dichotomizes the film perfectly. And it says, quote, exactly. Heavyweights is really two movies in one and they don't match. One movie is a no holds barred spoof of a Tony Little or Susan Powder style fitness merchants in which maniacal perkiness is equated with uncontrollable rage. I don't even remember these fitness gurus, but I'm sure they were 90s fitness people. I only remember the curly haired guy from the 90s. What was his name? Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons, right? He's kind of a Richard Simmons guy too. That fits in there too, right? Where I like this quote by Holden here. Maniacal perkiness is equated with uncontrollable rage. I just wanted to reiterate that. They're so upbeat. They're so buoyant. They're so exuberant that it comes off as this vicious, savage energy which plays against what they're trying to do. And to continue, uh, Holden says, the other movie is a conventional family comedy that pokes lighthearted fun at chubby young campers as they bounce off an inflatable rubber raft called The Blob and get beamed in the baseball and the balls. There is this duality that is so obvious to all the viewers. But Tony Perkins is the reason why it has achieved its cult status. Do you have any favorite scenes in particular of Tony Perkins? So my favorite part with Ben Silver B, I'm going to describe it as his descent to madness. This is when after the campers have already captured him, he's in his cage that's electrified. They, they made a cool makeshift electric device. And it's him basically coming up with his, his escape plan. So we, we have the little fat British kid as our, as our guard. I believe he's also the smart one who solves all the puzzles in the end. So we get him, he lures him out of the Percy's kiss, and then he basically holds him hostage. And I love the way he's holding him hostage, like almost like by the throat in a dangerously menacing way that is sure to catch you a charge if this goes to the authorities. Um, but then we get this cut and we don't know what happens. And then Ben Stiller shows up triumphantly in the corner of what is called like the cafeteria of this camp. He's kind of crouched up there. We have all the parents up there 
he makes his triumphant jump into this. And it's just so wild. He's so animated. He starts breaking bottles. I don't know why there's glass bottles in there. I guess the parents are drinking beers. But he starts breaking these beers and stepping on them as he's walking forward. And each step he takes, he breaks another one. As I'm watching this, I'm cracking up because it's just so over the top. And I'm just asking myself repeatedly, why is he stepping on glass? And there's no logical answer to it. And as we said, he's just so passionate <laughs> about losing, about anger, about the idea that his camp failed. And it comes to this culmination of, again, eccentricity and just insanity and insane behavior. And then even the way it culminates, it's so randomized. He gets punched by Jerry's father. And then he does a bunch of backflips into the wall and he's unconscious. And that's where we last see him. And I find it just so, it's funny. It makes me laugh, but it's also very like unrewarding. I'm like, what? He's done? That's it? The parents, he knocked himself out? Is that is that what I'm supposed to take from it? It's so wild and it's nonsensical, but it's still funny. It's, I can't give it enough. It's so over the top and it, it makes me just crack up. I can't explain why it makes me crack up. Over the top is the perfect word. It's very hyperbolic. What I also love about that sequence though is how, maligned he is as well right you said he should go to jail almost for holding the kid by the throat but let's not forget these kids have kidnapped him and are holding him hostage after trapping him in a real live trap how they dug this trap overnight is beyond me yeah. so okay, i'll note that because i was thinking the same thing doing a little bit of research I'm, i missed it my first viewing apparently they walked by this hole and one of the kids almost falls in it and that's how they set that up i didn't catch that myself either so i was like you know, i was i thought these kids had went you know macgyver really quickly and built this hole at night props to the film for putting that in there that's a very smart move those are the yeah. ways to get yourself out of that hole i mean plot hole i was gonna say we could talk about that there are a few good like check off guns moments where like you mentioned like the shaving it seems out of place like it's to make josh seem i guess more mature because he is the cool one he's our our ace character our alpha male of the fat kid group but it does come up later in the relay race right it helps them win so there are those little like elements of, like we get something it, it should be used later and they do keep that kind of promise which i think is good as we mentioned earlier too the steward is pinning the little wings yeah. on his on which, his chest right i didn't say at the time but that's also very to me came out very mighty ducks-ish it almost it was very like charlie it's not as elaborate and explored the way mighty ducks is with the character's background it was very much like Charlie in the seat. This idea that he got something, it's going to be explored, he's identified as the captain. And then, as he said, with the uh, go-kart race, when he flies, it's it's a good synchrony of that motif. It's funny, too, that they just choose these characters to be the leader of the hierarchy, but they really have no purpose or inciting moment that gives them any reason in this film jerry is suddenly our go-to guy i mean he is a protagonist of the film right so in cinematic logic it makes total sense but he shows up and before anything happens he's suddenly like the center of attention perhaps they do this to every newcomer but they offered him to drive as a joke i thought that was really funny and then they asked him if he drives stick and then they don't let him but just the entire gravity of the camp pulls to him as the leader throughout. And I was kind of scratching my head to be like, he's a new kid. He's got no real qualities of extraordinary charisma. If anything, that would be Keenan's character um, yeah, or Goldberg's character. Just I'm going to call him Goldberg throughout his life. Because <laughs> Goldberg's, like you said, he's the alpha. He's more mature. He shaves. But he's also the jokester, right? He's the buffoon. He's the one who pulls the Seymour Butts prank that really embarrasses Tony Perkins. And I love the sequence after that where he suddenly disappears and everyone's spreading rumors about him. That was a really funny moment about how kids spread rumors and how random the rumors were. I heard he was with a homeless guy without legs in New York City or suddenly 
Like that's what told, one of the kids said something along the lines of that. It's like, what? Or they, they left him off at the bus stop at midnight. Just these random stories that quickly pop up. And uh, I was going to call him Goldberg. Goldberg, please. Yeah, give it up. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 was, I called him Goldberg as I was watching it. I'm like, you're not Josh, you're Goldberg. Yeah, and Sean Weiss is always Goldberg in my mind. So, and Goldberg comes back and he's like, well, yeah, my parents were going to sue. They don't let me get kicked out of camp for some BS reason, like a Seymour Butts joke. And then once again, Josh or Goldberg is the most defiant one after their big hike. They get Ben Stiller to put on a blindfold and do sit-ups. And <laughs> isn't he the one who farts on his face? Uh, anyways, that whole hiking scene is just to me hilarious when he meditates and forces them to meditate for an hour. He makes fun of uh, Goldberg the moment before that. And he says 76% of Americans who forget to stretch before physical activity end up in an injury when he fakes the injury. Uh, we know it's a faked injury, so it's even better. Goldberg to me is the leader of the group, but Jerry is the chosen one. He's the protagonist, so he becomes our leader. What they do to Tony Perkins far surpasses any level of proper vengeance that he deserves. He's a jerk. He's cutthroat fitness guru who has zero empathy or sympathy for these kids. But, you know, he's not too different than the Hawks coach or, you know, the Iceland coach or any of J.O. Sanders' characters, in my opinion, if we really saw these teams practicing, right? If we saw Iceland practicing. Could you imagine Iceland trying to kidnap Wolf and Dennis Stanson? He would murder those kids. Like, that would be a whole different experience. Yeah, or the Knights trying to get J.O. Sanders even. J.O. Sanders would pull out his sword from his sheath <laughs> and start slicing on that. It would never work. So anyways, they kidnap the guy. And not only that is they create a completely manipulative film where they misquote him, they edit him in sneaky, unfair ways to show him even beyond how over the top he is as this demented psychopath who's, we learn from the film logic, which all the parents are watching because it's like parents' day, that he's supposedly starving these kids. Uh, it's quite funny. It shows the kids having to chase around cows looking for food. But no, he doesn't deserve what he gets. I kind of feel that he was wrong more than anyone in this movie. Yeah, I like what you point out because it's also interesting that all that's kind of facilitated by all the adults who are planning to take him out through legal means and like the right avenues. And then they get on board with this like this kidnapping pretty much and they use it all you know to their benefit. And in the end, they're rewarded for it too. And it's kind of worth looking at these characters who are rewarded because you point out the only one of them, our skinny character who lost weight, the only one who's ever lost weight at this fat camp apparently, right? He's not even worthy enough to take over the camp in the end, right? And so it's very interesting like when we see all these characters who we're supposed to be rooting for, as you point out, they're all in this nefarious plan that I, I agree with you. It's much worse than, than what Tony did. Tony never actually got to do anything. We forget, like, when he's chasing Josh, that's a moment of tension where he's broken. And it's crazy because we're supposed to be like, what's he going to do when he catches that kid, right? That's To me, that's the funny part. He's chasing like, what's he going to do when he catches Goldberg? Like, he's going to strike Goldberg? But it doesn't happen, right? Goldberg and then outsmart him. And then they take him to this camp and then he's essentially starved. And then he has to break out. And I always love that idea that, like, he's the one who had to break out. He doesn't even talk about, you know, your kids did this and this. He, he jumps down, starts breaking glass. Like, the kids psychologically damaged him. So, yeah, I agree with you. I feel like the kids just, they broke him. They took over. Going back to the letter that Jerry writes to his dad halfway through, he starts it off with, war is hell. And he talks about all these desperate measures they have to be making, that they are famished. So, you know, I can get that in his mind when he's forced to eat healthy food. It might feel like he's in a war zone in which he's being attacked from all fronts. And so they have been psychologically traumatized by Tony Perkins, even though he, what he's doing is not necessarily illegal. Giving them a bunch of fruit and making them do a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups isn't necessarily illegal. 
but he's traumatized them. And so it ends up in this psychological warfare scenario and the kids win. They end up winning. He ends up giving the camp very quickly after his psychological meltdown to Pat, right? Pat gets to take yeah. over the camp. And even after, uh, you know, Ben Stiller plays another role, I'll let you kind of explain this because I was confused by it. I know you understood it more. Who does Ben Stiller play here? So in my viewing of it, this is supposed to be Tony Sr. We get the information that Tony's dad's the one who's funding all this. And therefore, because I'm guessing Tony went to jail or he's just not there anymore. Someone has to run the camp. And so they, they have that moment where they all look at each other as who's going to run the camp? Who's going to lead our team moment? And we fall on Pat, basically just because he's been there the longest, as I said before, is the reason he's going to be the leader there. Pat's a pretty good character, though. He's very affable. He has that touching scene with Jerry where they do the go-karts at night and he pushes them when Jerry's super bummed and they look up at the stars. He, I love the moment. One of my favorite moments is when he's driving them to the camp from the city and they go past a, a street of KFC, Taco Bell, and all the fast food. And they're like, pull over, pull over, pull over. And then he, he, he fakes pulling over and then swerves back in. I don't know how they shot this, but he, the, the bus literally almost hits three cars. Uh, I thought it was funny because it was so low production quality. But Pat's lo- lovable. He's a likable guy. And he also has his own self-esteem issues with his romantic interests. They definitely passed the baton to him. What confused me was this very meta, silly thing where Ben Stiller plays himself, I guess, as Papa Perkins. But he also has his real-life dad as the previous camp counselor. He has to give the camp away because he signed too many bad checks you learn so we had jerry stiller then ben stiller playing both himself and his own dad it's kind of funny it's very weird and meta to me this weird i'm gonna play myself and my dad but my dad's also in the film as a different character i i don't know to me that there's there's some comedic strangeness at play here can't even put my finger on it and i'm sticking up a lot for tony perkins but he doesn't really deserve to be completely bolstered by any means he is a douchebag and probably his worst scene to me is the dance scene and it's also one of my favorite scenes is the dance scene and that's where pat really earns his prestige as a good role model and so does tim love tim in this scene it's one of my favorite scenes do you have any favorite memories or parts of the dance scene actually when they start dancing when they actually go on the dance floor and you have tim going out there looking like a dork first then pat and then his love interest comes on it's a very good moment i love they play with the cheesiness of the song and also it's interesting because we're talking about it's another movie genre thing coming into this it's kind of we get the dance thing now right which is a whole other genre of its own with tons of movie history behind dance moments and this is a cool one because it's a bunch of you know overweight kids having their moment so I think I do like that scene when they actually get on the dance floor and they all start just dancing. The way it's shot, it's, it's a very successful shot. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Angus, where Angus, it's Angus and his Terminator friend who just dance completely like clumsy klutzes in the middle of the dance floor, but they, they don't give a shit. They're going to be themselves and the world has to cater to that. And that's what Tim does. And then Pat joins in, even though Pat has serious, serious issues with his social anxiety. I love that Pat jumped in and then all the heavyweights jumped in and then finally the girls jumped in and right then Tony Perkins shows up and plays a total buzzkill, right? He cancels it right away because his whole point was to shame the kids through this dance. He threw it specifically to humiliate them because he knew that these cute girls would remind them of the fact that they are ill-fit for you know courtship and even I love the moment at the end throw out the fruits he has fruit platters only right so he's just a die-hard fitness jerk who's going to always promote fruit and try to instill these kids with as much compunction and guilt and chagrin as he could possibly do so that he can motivate them to be sociopathic fit people like himself 
So we've quickly really gotten through this film. We've even tackled the final sequence with Camp Hope versus Camp MVP and all of the hijinks throughout the film. Is there anything that you want to touch upon before we jump into reviews and what uh, critics and fans had to say? No, I think we kind of covered everything that stood out to me from this film. What um, about the candy scene? Anything about the oh, candy actually, scene? Yeah, that, I'm glad you brought that up. Watching this now as an adult, I like that the candy scenes are just like reminiscent of them smuggling drugs. Just straight up the idea that the kid, the one kid who has a suitcase, like a drug dealer, and he opens up their own like little like dime bags. They're all organized. Like he's the, he's the guy who slings candy in the camp. I like that moment. I like that. It's kind of like a nod to both kids because it's the idea of deception of the adults. Like you're hiding the candy from the adults. I think a lot of kids can relate to like hiding, you know, candy or whatever from what you're not supposed to eat or whatever. And then the idea for the adults, like these kids are hiding the shit like it's drugs. I think just it serves really well. It's a good balance in that scene. Yeah, I love that scene. I love the way that they all have a different way of smuggling in their candy, right? One kid has a salami, well, not always candy, right? There's salami as well. Right. Uh, salami like taped to his chest. The British kid has all of his chocolate melted. And so they end up diving on him like cannibals to devour the chocolate. And I love that they open the bedpost corners and stuff it down the bedpost. They have a hidden treasure trove that's underneath the wooden floor. It's just really creative. Later, there's a moment where Tony Perkins offers to give a hug and then he finds the Pez in his sock. I love that. So there's a big motif in this film about hiding candy, which I read in some reviews is one of the knocks on this film in so much as it pretty much reduces obesity to eating too much candy or junk food and not quite working out enough. And that's pretty much it. But in a film like this, that's all they're going to do. It's going to be pretty flat in its Yeah, it's actually interesting because like it's a valid point, but like the movie is not about dieting at all. It's all about shame-based tactics to motivate to change yourself. It has nothing to do with the dieting. Like like you said, the dieting parts are more like they're funny observations. Like the idea that it's a dance and there's nothing but fruit there. <laughs> that, that ties to it. We has that joke about wheatgrass and things like that. That's where we get those healthy tidbits in there. But yeah, I do feel like that is uh, deliberately lacking because this isn't a, necessarily a movie about changing your weight. In the end, you can eat your cake and have it too, I think, in this one. <laughs> nice fun. What you made me think of right there too, though, is that it's not about dieting or it's not really about getting fit, yet they still have a shift once Pat starts to run the camp. Did you find yeah. the celerity, the rapidity of how quickly it gets into its final act slash climax a little awkward? very jarring for me. I felt like, here we go. We're on the march to victory now, right away. Because the scene comes after, like, the food orgy, I'm going to call it. The kids <laughs> have an orgy of food, and they wake up like they're, they're hungover the next day, right? And then Tim is, he's suddenly Mr. Health. He's, all right, boys, we're going to get into shape, and we're going to win the Apache games, because that's what it comes down to. And I, it was just so jarring, because Tim is is not the embodiment of health. Tim does not buy into these values at all. He, he rejects them. And I, I don't know if you made the connection, but I got the idea that him and the counselor might have hooked up the night before. Because the last time we see them she takes his hand and says hang out with me here and then the kids have their food orgy and then the next day he wakes up he's ready to be motivated so i don't know if that's the reason like he's got a new girlfriend he's like hey, i gotta get in the shape if i'm gonna keep her like so then it comes down to the physical appearance then too i was really digging into that scene because i was just really amused that he was the one who's gonna lead the charge now to victory food orgy is what to call it it's total like a roman bacchanalia of pouring jam in their mouth, spraying whipped cream over each other, chocolate syrups being oozed out, right? It's carnivalesque. It's a complete decadent, indulgent mayhem of junk food, right? I love this scene. Someone looks like a human s'more and they go to tackle them. It's fun. I love that moment. Uh, 
the bonfire and fireworks. I think there's a huge sub sandwich, which actually makes the VHS cover, right, make sense. Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense without that huge sub sandwich. And you're right, though. They all wake up completely plastered off junk food, hungover. It reminds me of a scene from, like, Satyricon, an old Fellini film. It's all about, you know, old Roman orgies in which there's these morning after shots where they're all kind of sprawled out. It's very similar. And then they all kind of, like, drearily, like, wake up and stand on their feet. And then it's strange. He gives this, you know, lecture about personal responsibility. And he talks about personal responsibility in a sense that you weren't expecting. But you need to be responsible for your own diets and take control of yourselves before we take control of this camp. And it's nice because it's saying that, you know, this is important that you do take a little bit of control of yourselves. Going full on into gluttony is not necessarily promoting positive lifestyle <laughs> lifestyle for children viewers. But they also want to say that let's have some fun. Let's mm. be ourselves. Let's not hate ourselves. It is a good balance to have Pat be the preacher of this message and not Tony Perkins. And so you get this duality of which Tony is taking it too far. But Pat has a more healthy and balanced approach in which you are fine for who you are, but you can also take a little bit more of uh, responsibility and accountability for your actions and just be a little more in control of your habits and your, your appetites, let's say. But then they have like one quick workout scene, that's it. And then they're in the, uh, the Apache race where we don't get the history of this. We don't know why they're dressed up in Native American garb. Is it just because all that is Hollywood's conception? And I think for us, we like, America's conception of camp life is that Indian motif. Obviously, it's clearly incorrect now. Yeah, I think definitely at that time, I think we see that is that motif there. Yeah, and that they're maybe the underdogs too. Yeah. In some weird way. But then they would fit also the toga because they just had a Roman orgy. So, I mean, (laughs) of food, but yeah. It's just bizarre. And you noted that there was a few mistakes and errors in the moments in which they asked, you know, math questions and trivia questions in this relay race. I want you to just have a moment to be able to announce these funny little insights. So I'm by no means a like mathematician or anything like that, but apparently when the Apache winning equation that needed to be solved, apparently like that math equation you couldn't solve for because you can't solve for X in that equation, I guess. It doesn't have enough information or enough variables. So I thought that was an interesting one. Then one that stood out to me was in the, the beginning when Ben Stiller's father, Jerry Stiller, explains how the camp is filing for bankruptcy. He says we're filing for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. And in my head, I was like, what is Chapter 9? Because the most common ones are Chapter 7 and Chapter 13. And Chapter 9 like, would be what a government municipality would file for bankruptcy. So like your city would file under Chapter 9. So that's just like a minor lazy detail. Like he would have had to file under Chapter 7. So if you're a little more savvy with that, or if you file, file bankruptcy in the past or like that, you'd know that. Um, just those little details in there. Yeah, great little details I would never notice. I'm glad you bring those to life. It shows lazy screenwriting to a degree, done in a cursory manner, obviously. You didn't take enough time to research it. I don't know how strong Google was in 95, though. Might have been a little harder to find these things than a quick Google search, but they could have done a better job. So the final relay versus MVP camp is fun. I love the go-kart sequence. I just don't get why it comes down to them winning basically on math and trivia and the fact that the jocks are adults, right? They're, they're just too stupid. Yeah, it kind of goes in the face of everything the movie was building up to. And I agree with that. Like, the, the, there's no way to cut around it. Everything that you're building up to, what you're supposed to be overcoming, I guess the message is you had it all within you the whole time. It's very well, much opposite of, uh, like, the Mighty Ducks, right? The Mighty Ducks is much more of a team that you have potential, you have to work for that potential, and then the results of winning is, you know, the culmination of all that. Yeah. 
at this point, let's get into some of the reviews and not pine on that element so much. The critics give this film a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, but there's a major discrepancy uh, with the audience who has a whopping 75% and it's actually fresh. It actually is a positive consensus. It has the flattered green insignia that's so famous on Rotten Tomatoes. That means it got over the hump, which is very rare for these films. And we both tackled probably my favorite review, which was by Stephen Holden. There's also a really cool review on complex.com. In the same article we talked about with D2 and D3 that ranked these Disney-based sports films, it was actually the article that gave me the idea that this really does belong. I had overlooked this at first, and then I had to throw it in here after realizing all of the connections between the Mighty Ducks actors and this film. So at Complex.com, they say, quote, thanks to co-writer Judd Apatow and a memorable performance by Ben Stiller, Heavyweights has emerged from the pack of these films to become a cult classic. The problem with Heavyweights is that the aspects that make it beloved also make it terribly uneven. The dark behavior of Ben Stiller's fitness guru is hilarious, but a zany scatterbrained villain flirting with psychosis is a strange fit for a Disney film. If Stiller's performance had been presented to us as a distilled vignette in a funnier die sketch or as a B-plot on Undeclared, then the form may have been a nice fit for the content. I completely agree with this quote. It taps into what we already said and what we were delving into quite a bit earlier. Do you have any professional reviews that you found besides the one from the New York Times? Yeah, this one's from the Washington Post. It was written by Hel Henson. This is another one that came out in 1995. Here's what Henson has to say, quote, Make no mistake about it. Disney's Heavyweights is the best movie about calorically challenged pubescent boys that summer camp ever made, bar none. Considering that there are no other movies about calorically challenged prepubescent boys at a summer camp, this may not be the bold statement it seems to be. All right, so I like his little play as he opens up his, his review. Obviously, it was not in news of this film. He continues, which brings up his question, uh, is how he ends his review. Should a kid's movie be criticized for being too goody-goody and socially sensitive and correct? I'm not sure if I got away socially sensitive and correct out of this movie, but I thought that was interesting in this time that he, he had this viewpoint of it. He continues, appropriately, Heavyweights has a big heart for the suffering of fat boys of all sizes, shapes, and nationalities. And maybe this sort of motion picture makes a good, if not perfect, start down the road to a nation that judges a man by the quality of his character and not by the number of gummy bears he downs. So this review is kind of everywhere. I thought it was very playful and fun. I don't know if I, I don't necessarily agree with the socially sensitive and correct part about it. I guess it is a little sensitive because as we said, it doesn't really push boundaries of fat jokes, etc. But I do like kind of harping on the idea that it's okay to just be happy with yourself. I guess that's the ultimate point. But I did like his 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 wording of this, of his film. Yeah, I like his wording of it's more important than gummy bear. How many gummy bears you eat is basically the the pillars of your personality and your character. Mm-hmm. It's a good it's a good review. I like that. I didn't come across that one. Thanks for sharing that one. I have another not review of this film, but it's also from that complex.com. And as we're wrapping up these Disney-based kids films, next week we have one more, but it's not Disney. It's Little Giants. And because it doesn't quite fit in, I always want to bring this this quote up and talk about it really quickly. And this article ranked all of the 90s sports movies, as I mentioned in the last episode. They said that looking back at Disney 90s live action sports films, you're struck by the distance of the quality of the films and our memory of the films. Though Cool Running to the Mighty Ducks are by far best remembered of all these movies, there's a bobsled track's length of distance between the two films in terms of quality. So for this writer, they really liked Cool Runnings and they didn't really like Mighty Ducks. It's hard to see exactly how nostalgia warps our view of things, bringing some pop culture artifacts to the foreground while letting others drift away. One thing that becomes clear examining these movies is that there's a huge gap between our nostalgic memories and the real quality of them. 
I think this is a good way to sort of start to wrap up this series. There's the conflicts and the tension between nostalgic memories of things and how they are as an adult that we've been dealing with. And in terms of heavyweights, this one is particularly interesting. It has all these strange impressions. Last week, we ended being really stoked to see this film. How do you feel now after having rewatched it? A bit underwhelmed. I wasn't. I didn't have a connection to this movie, as like I said, growing up. It wasn't one that was on my VHS collection. I had friends who were part of that cult following who really liked Heavyweights. I feel like when I watched it, I was anticipating comedic gold because it's put on such a high pedestal by that cult following. And because of my feelings for Ben Stiller, as I, as we mentioned in this podcast, I do like his comedic styling. And I felt like I was coming in there with such high expectations that it never met those expectations for me as a viewer. Up until that last scene where Ben Seller goes crazy, but it's at the very end of the movie. So it's not the reward I would, would have wanted after watching, you know, like an hour and a half movie or whatever. So it was a little underwhelming watching it because I don't have that nostalgic connection. I can't pull out any one-liners from this one, even after watching it again. It dragged a bit for me. Interesting. I agree that I was a little slightly bit underwhelmed by Tony Perkins' character because I had put him on such a high pedestal over time. I remember being taken aback by how bizarre his performance was as a kid. It really threw me off. Never seen anything quite like it, especially in this type of film. And then I had read a lot of reviews in the past decade or so here and there where people who are part of the cult following in this film talk about his role. And it got me super excited and it animated his portrayal to almost an impossible level. I still think he's by far the strongest point, the strongest aspect of this film. That said, it was a little less than what I expected. I do disagree though, in terms of quotable lines. They're they're difficult lines, but he has some amazing lines. I just wanna tackle them. I wanna go down a list of some of my favorite lines. He says, one scene, my ass is wheatgrass. It's a little just aside, but I just think it's super funny. Precedes Whole Foods culture to a T. Yoga, yuppie, middle-class American bourgeois culture is completely encapsulated just in that stupid pun, my ass is wheatgrass. Mm -hmm. He has little things where he's talking on the intercom. He says, tonight's lecture, liposuction, option or obsession. It's bizarre. And I read that he is one of the writers of the film. He gets a credit. I know it's mainly Stephen Brill's film. I truly believe that all of these quotes are... Ben Siller's input because it kind of has thematic and tonal similarities to his other work. He's a really funny writer. When they finally do reach the top of the hike right before he gets led to that trap and kidnapped, he feels a sense of accomplishment for once. They actually are on the same team, which is a narrative pathway I would have actually appreciated in a way. I would have appreciated Tony Perkins kind of coming down to earth and becoming the leader of these kids where they kind of meet in the middle, but it doesn't happen. There is a scene where they get to the top and he triumphantly says, amazing what a little food deprivation can do to the psyche. I love that. It's it's really along one of my main interests is to see the relationship between what we eat and how we think. There's a tremendous amount of unique mysticism in this little tiny quote that precedes to me the time period by quite a large degree. Uh, this is countercultural stuff here that he's bringing up the, the relationship between depriving yourself of calories and having a psychological initiation process into this higher degree of consciousness or something. It also precedes modern American culture by millennia. I mean, if you read an old shamanism and stuff, but he's tapping into these shamanistic, earthy, mystical philosophies and bringing it into this comedy. And it's just really, really well done. Perhaps my favorite scene is when he does his first workout. 
they're on like yoga mats and they're sliding. And I just love that he's just like, slide, slide, slide. And then Lars, who I think is quasi funny, but a little bit of a letdown as well, right? Has a quote uh, cut and he says, I'm feeling skinny, Tony. <laughs> that, that connection was so funny. And they're like, slide, slide, I'm feeling skinny, Tony. There's two more quotes I love. When he first shows up, he says, all you need is Mother Earth, Father Sky, and your dear old Uncle Tony which definitely taps into this sort of yuppie horoscope culture that he's pulling from very well, right? It also kind of taps into that Native American lexicon, right? Mother Earth, Father Sky. I don't know if it does that delicately in any way, so I don't want to promote that, but it's a a funny line, the way he throws himself in this kind of mythological consortium of things, Mother Earth, Father Sky, and him, dear old Uncle Tony. And the final one is maybe my favorite, and it's kind of just a throwaway line, but he's, he's once again on the intercom, he says, attention campers, lunch has been canceled today due to a lack of hustle. Deal with it. I just love how brutal that is. He's hilarious in this. Uh, the lines are great. They're hard to remember because they're a little more layered than some of the yeah. great comedic lines, right? I watched Ace Ventura again. I watched it almost every month, and every line's so memorable because they're easy right another shrimp on the barbie do not go in there Woo! without the white or the red clam chowder this film's a little more esoteric so it's a little harder to follow so film about obesity and i keep bringing this up in all of our stuff what snacks i'm just gonna go jump into a totally different arena what snacks do you most miss from the 90s that are not around today is Laffy Taffy still around? Uh, yes, but not very prevalent. I know a particular Laffy Taffy flavor. I don't think it's around. It used to be strawberry banana. I used to always have to go to KB Toys in the mall to find it because you couldn't <laughs> find it in any stores. So <laughs> I was really particular about that one. This is one you used to get from the ice cream man. It was called Lucas. And it's literally just Mexican chili powder. But they had one called Baby Lucas. That was like candy. And I remember we used to get these things. You get like a dollar. You get like four of these bottles. It's literally bottles of chili powder. And you just pour them in your hand and you lick them. And like they dry out your throat. And they're, they're awesome. They're so I good. don't think they sell those anymore. But yeah, the Baby Lucas would be my, my go-to 90s candy. Yeah. What about Dunkaroos? Oh, dude. Just side note. My girlfriend's never had Dunkaroos. We, saw, we were watching uh, Fresh Off the Boat, and they referenced Dunkaroos. She's like, what's that? And I was like, you never seen a Dunkaroos commercial? That's what sold the Dunkaroos. I just remember the kangaroo commercial like, so well. But yeah, that's a good one. They're good call, Dunkaroos. That's funny. They had Dunkaroos and Fresh Off the Boat. That, they would, because Eddie Huang, who writes the show, or at least it's based off his memoirs, yeah. would totally rep Dunkaroos, in my opinion. Yeah, if you want like a throwback to just 90s and general nostalgia, Fresh Off the Boat, I suggest watching. It's fun. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. Very timely with this podcast, actually, as I'm watching through it. I really like Eddie Huang. I like everything he does. He's politically savvy. He's countercultural. He's got flavor. He's got wit. And he's got hustle. He's a cool character. I like. I don't know if you know Eddie Huang, who's behind it. But also, I, rec- I recommend him. He's really intelligent, but he's really, like, street smart, too. And he's he's got restaurants. He had, he had a Vice show. And just, I really, he's one of my favorites. That's where I first discovered was on Vice. I remember seeing that show with him traveling around with not. Yeah. yeah, I think he's cool uh, and refreshing. He's a cool writer too. He writes pretty well. Let's move to that 75% audience reviews to wrap this up. And on Letterboxd, we have a bunch of funny reviews as we always do. I'll start off with one by Andrew Bemis. And he wrote, I'm a 29-year-old man who bought a Blu-ray of a movie I've seen several times so I can watch Ben Stiller berate chubby kids in high definition and with a DTS 5.1 soundtrack. 
it may be time for me to reassess my life choices. <laughs> I just want to send a lifeline to you, Andrew Bemis. We are 30-year-old adults who talk for hours about these films, so we all have to do a little reassessing. No, I'm just playing. Uh, or reach out to us and give us your opinion about these yeah, movies. It's something to not be ashamed of. I think you made a great life choice. That was probably a $25 purchase well spent. Do you have any uh, you want to point out? Yeah, so Robert Beardsley gave this movie four stars. He had this to say, quote, Here's an interesting movie theory. What if heavyweights Tony Perkins became Dodgeball's white goodman? Which I feel like was me the whole time watching this. I feel like that was, that was just my line of thought. I was like, this has to be him in the future. And I would love if that was the, the next cinematic universe was the Tony Perkins cinematic origin story. That's that's the movie I want to see is Tony Perkins as a kid with those tours he was talking about in that first scene. That's the movie I want to see. And I like that they take your theory a step further, your connection, right? You made the connection between the two, but he says, what if he actually became Mike Goodman? What if they're the same person? I want a sequel or like, I don't know what what to call it, a sequel, a hybrid sequel of Dodgeball and Heavyweights where they do do the the connection, where we realize it was Tony Perkins. And I want to see how he became White Goodman from Tony Perkins. That would be something. Maybe a multiverse film where we also get the Zoolander character, maybe Ben Stiller, all these characters are somehow in the same person in different universes, alternative realities. That's the future of cinema, right? That's the future of sequels. Instead of the Infinity Gauntlet, it's the mask from Jim Carrey's The Mask. (laughs) That's a great idea. Now we're on to something. We're revolutionizing the future of uh, tentpole flicks right here. Instead of rebooting all these classics, we get to reboot a whole universe of classics that are just tenuously connected by an actor. It'd be hard to get the rights though, I think, for all those films at the same time. So Wood, we bring him up every time. He's he's a popular figure on uh, <laughs> on Letterboxd. He gave it one star and he said, quote, Ben Stiller in one of his most obnoxious roles, but I did like seeing him yell at fat kids. I will always love Keenan Thompson in things, although I'm fairly certain he's never said anything funny his entire career. Brutal, really vicious. I don't want to be too provocative here. I almost slightly agree with him about Keenan Thompson. It's weird. I don't think he says things that are that funny. I think he's so likable. He has this charisma that you can't help but be lured into, but so often his quotes without him saying them wouldn't be funny. He's given crappy dialogue a lot that he makes so much out of. He gets a lot of mileage out of what he Yeah, what he I agree with you because I thought, I, I kind of disagree with things. I thought in the, particularly the D3 movie, the Ducks movie, he doesn't have very many lines, but they're all really funny and they're all memorable. Mm-hmm. In this one, he's funny and likable, but he didn't have anything memorable in this one. So in that regard, I agree with his performance in this. So I felt like Keen Thompson wasn't used enough in this one. Because that was one of my complaints that I critiqued on this one was, if you were to weight the strength of performances, even based on the movies we've watched up to this point, these actors we know, like Goldberg, Keenan Thompson, and then the character who plays Jerry, he played Carp in Mighty Ducks. The strongest of those actors, I think, is probably Keenan Thompson. But the strongest at that time, I'd say, was probably Goldberg, who I would have probably cast as the lead character, I think, in this one. He has the most charisma. So I kind of agree with him now. I think King Thompson didn't get a chance to be very funny in this one. No, he's a likable character, right? He has yeah. a lot of plot moving lines, but not a lot of funny ha-ha lines. Yeah, he's Jerry's like best friend kind of character in this, mm-hmm. you know? So he's like, it's not developed much, but that's what he's, his role is. And so like, I'm trying to think, and Teddy, what's the funniest moment, I guess not even funny, is when he hits the kid with the baseball bat as they're going away. And it's kind of like sanctioned violence by the coach, which I thought was funny. Coach like, yeah, good job. You bust that kid in the ribs with the baseball bat. It's funny, but again, it's, it's more of his delivery of it too. I'll still say like, go 
Goldberg, if that puck was a cheeseburger, you'd have stopped it. Wouldn't it be that funny, but the way he delivers it has me rolling every time. So his delivery far supersedes what he's usually given yeah. to work with, and we'll agree with that. Wood also said that it turns out the only thing that Paul Feig is worse at than directing is acting, which to me now I almost think that his review here is just kind of trying to uh, goad people. Yeah, he's just trying to be provocateur here almost. I don't, I don't buy that review at all. Kind of funny. It touches on some things that are, have some truth to him, but I don't know. I think he's just trying to be a troll almost. How about, what did Soupy Doopy say? He gave it five stars. So Soupy Doopy had this to say, quote, Heavyweight should be a must-watch movie in every young child's life. When I go to a baby shower, I drop off diapers, a little corduroy overall, and a DVD of heavyweights. Right out the gate, Ben Stiller as Tony Perkins is awesome. I like to think somewhere in the cinematic universe, Tony Perkins and Dodgeball's White Goodman have met up and had shenanigans together. <laughs> I love the way he had the idea of them up in somewhere in cinematic heaven having a drink and getting to, like, raising hell, which is awesome. All of these seem to point to, in some universe, there's this thread or fabric that's connecting these characters together. I think we could picture him in uh, heaven up with Adam Sandler and Chubbs, maybe, prancing yeah. around. <laughs> just, we're going to throw it all together. A 90s reboot film, just all the 90s. That 90s film, we'll call it. <laughs> that 90s comedy. Now we've reached the end. We've foreshadowed our opinions overall, but we didn't exactly say whether it was an underdog or overrated. We said underwhelmed. I'm glad we stayed away from the word underdog. Particularly, do you think this film is underdog or overrated 90s Disney kids action film? I'm going to say it's an overrated 90s kids action film. I still stand. I don't think it's a sports movie, but I will allow it on our prestigious list of, of films here. I did find it just underwhelming. It never really rose to its mythic qualities that precede it based on its audience reviews. I was really surprised it got such a high review on Rotten Tomatoes. Considering how low a lot of the movies we've talked about already had such low reviews. I was really surprised by that. I was surprised too, but Ben Stiller's role here has turned into some sort of a mythological... I feel like watching this movie is kind of like going back and looking at like a band you like, but you didn't discover them till later on and you're listening to their early work. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. For me in this one, it wasn't as good as their current stuff, but I could see the seeds of what would eventually be genius. And I think that's what I take away from this one as the strongest point. You can see where these films going to show up and how it influences other really just impactful comedies that define my cinematic life. That's a fantastic analogy. I completely agree with what you said. So I think that's pretty much what gives it its 75% is because of the impact of all the people behind this film is so strong. And because this film was kind of crappy and so thrown aside for years, it's had a resurgence where people are like, wait, it's actually got a lot of seeds of greatness that haven't yet come into fruition in the film, but we can see them because we know of all the other great works of mm -hmm. uh, Ben Stiller and Apatow and so forth. So in my underdog overrated ranking, I'm going to turn it into the two films that everyone's turned it into, the Camp film, the Ben Stiller film. The Camp mm -hmm. film to me is an overrated film, still lackluster to me. It's just weak. I think Stephen Burrell did a pretty lazy job with the script. He noted some inconsistencies just based off of its jargon and things like, uh, you know, it's legalese that it uses. But it goes far beyond that. I think he's just pulling from the Mighty Ducks in a sloppy way. And there's just not enough development. It doesn't work. In terms of the Ben Stiller fitness guru, crazy surrealistic satire aspect of this film, I still think it is worthy of the underdog stamp. 
It's not as great as I quite expected, but it's still pretty funny. And his performance, every scene, really amplifies this film to another level. It elevates everything about it and makes it worthy of a rewatch. I, I, I did not feel like I wasted my time rewatching this by any means, simply because of Ben Stiller's performance. And so I think it's an underdog film. I think it does deserve its strange niche cult following with an asterisk that you appropriately add, that it isn't quite up to the quality of some of perhaps his other work, but it's, it's got its moments and it's, it's definitely a performance. It's definitely a performance to remember. So next week, we're going to cover Little Giants, which is our last of these children's 90s films. I noticed I didn't say the word Disney, it's not a Disney film. It's probably the one I watched the most that are the big green of kind of sober film compared to some of these. It's not quite as silly, but it has a lot of silly elements and very similar. Is there anything you want to foreshadow or talk about in terms of your anticipation for rewatching this one? Yeah. One, I'm really stoked to watch this. This is one of my favorite kids sports movies. And particularly watching Big Green made me really want to visit this one. Because at the heart of this movie, it's really another movie about a small town. Two people who are big in the small town, people who are small in that already small town. In this case, it's a family. I love the brothers rival between Rick Moranis and Ed O'Neill. And I'm really interested to see how that plays out as I'm older. I'm also excited to finally see Rick Moranis. I haven't seen a Rick Moranis movie in years. (laughs) I'm probably going to watch this. I'm guessing I'm going to watch like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids after probably. I've been dying to see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids again as well. So I might just do a double feature. We can throw off a little bit of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids analysis as well in it, perhaps. (laughs) Awesome. So I'm, for all the same reasons, excited for Little Giants. I want to see how it pulls from Disney's tropes because I think they are kind of stealing a little bit, but how it will build on tonally uh, things that exist outside of the Disney universe. I just think that it's going to have a different ethos that's going to be interesting to see because it's so similar, I remember, to all those films we've already watched. But it's not Disney. So it's going to be just slightly more real in a way and slightly maybe less sleek in a way. Maybe not. I don't know. That's it for this week. Heavyweights was a fun time. Pretty hungry now. So I'm going to get myself a sub sandwich and a nice glass of wheatgrass.